In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome to Plus Episode 22, Premium Subscriber. Your ongoing support means so much to me and I hope you're enjoying the commercial-free content. Author and journalist Von Brashler is a writer on the subjects of time, human consciousness, and energy healing. Von has lectured and led workshops throughout the U.S. and the U.K. and served as a faculty member at Omega Institute for Holistic Studies in Rhinebeck, New York. He's a former newspaper and magazine editor. He writes and leads workshops in the areas of consciousness development. He's the author of several books on time travel and human consciousness, including A Magical Journal, Conversations with the Dream Mentor, Perfect Timing, Mastering Time Perception for Personal Excellence, Seven Secrets of Time Travel, Confessions of a Reluctant Ghost Hunter, and his latest is Time Shifts, experiences of slipping into the past and future. Hey, Vaughn, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Hi, Richard. Thanks for inviting me to your wonderful podcast. Thank you for being here. Time shifts, time dilation, time travel has to be right up there among my favorite topics. How did it get started for you? Well, I started having strange time shifts or time slips when I was as young as 12. And, uh, I would just, like, I couldn't account for something, but I'd be somewhere else, <laughs> and I couldn't account for how long I was gone and how I got there, and it continued on. I started having them uh, frequently when I was in my 30s and working at a newspaper in Oregon, and I'd be walking down the street, and no, oh, I don't remember how I got to the end. I'd be developing film, and I couldn't figure out how long I'd been in there overdeveloping my film because I was somewhere else. And it just continued, and then I started seeing people popping in and popping out, and I realized it wasn't just me. <laughs> and when you leave wherever you're at, your consciousness goes somewhere else, where yep. do you go? That's the key, isn't it? That, where, is the, where is there? That is it. So 
I, I, it seems to me that most people, uh, when they uh, have these time slips, they'll vi- be visiting the very same place at a different time. And, uh, and you see that time is, um, is not a linear line. You know, it, it goes forward, it goes backward, it, it, it exists, it, it continues to exist. Um, it's not just a flight of fancy. You're actually, you're actually visiting a different time. Usually, usually, you know, if you went and go into a forest and you're you're very quiet and you get into this deep um, uh, altered state of consciousness and maybe you're all alone and you take one step and poof, everything changes. Now, not everything changes. It might be the woods, but it might be different growth of trees. It might be an, usually it's an earlier time. You know, could be a later time. Usually, it's an earlier time, and then the, you lose the con- that consciousness point, that that level of, of of that altered consciousness state. You take another step, and you're right back where you started from at the same time and place. When you said that it started when you were about twelve, let's talk a little bit about that. You were out berry picking when this happened. Tell me about this strange occurrence. Well, I I was berry picking, and I got a terrible terrible abdominal pain and i sometimes you just know you just know it's just not just an upset tummy it's it's really life-threatening i think something inside you your spirit or whatever tells you this is imminent danger you know and um and i think that's what what pulls us out of these things from time to time in 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 emergencies is is the your, your inner light, your inner spirit just knows where it is, where it's going, what's happening, even more than our little, our little brains do. And, and in this case, I said, I got to go. I got to leave. And they wouldn't drive me home until the end of the day when everybody went home on the bus. So I said, well, I'm going to start walking on these railroad tracks. I said, they'll take me right to my home. And I didn't know exactly where it was or where the tracks go and all the switchbacks, but I just felt confident it would take me there. And I was like 20 miles away from home, and I couldn't, I couldn't walk there. I think if I went down the street, I couldn't find the, the route. But I thought if I'd followed that railroad track and I went around the bend, and I, everything got real still and real quiet, real quiet, and then whew, I was in front of my front door instantly. And I went inside. Well, I uh, I had a burst appendix. It was a good thing I got home, you know. But then a year later, I realized because you know you, you we don't have a way of dealing with these things. We call them we call them daydreams or visions or flight of fancy, and so we just like we certainly rarely talk about them, <laughs> except on your show, Richard. But um, <laughs> that's why I'm here. The confessional. That's why you're, <laughs> thanks, Richard. It's confessional time. So I realized a year later, without having told anybody exactly how I got there, I never—I didn't even tell my parents how I got there. Um, I realized the train tracks didn't stop in front of my door. They're nowhere near my door. Nowhere near my house. Nowhere near. But a year later, uh, two years later, we moved north of town, and train tracks right in front of our drive up to our house. So it kind of made sense. It kind of made sense, yet it didn't make sense. You know, and um, that was just the first of several I've had. And, and now I just kind of slip in and slip out. But you know, the thing is to learn to control it. You know, most of these things just happen kind of accidentally. 
Right, right. And we'll talk a little bit later about how you learn to control it. In fact, you have some exercises in your book to explain how people can do this. One of the most well-known cases of a time slip goes back to the early 1900s, and a woman was visiting Versailles. You recount that incident in the book. Uh, Tell me about it. It's, it's one of the documented cases that they always point to as, as well-substantiated and proof of time shifts, time slips. Charlotte Moberly was actually a pr- president of a college of Oxford University, and she was visiting the Palace of Versailles on a day when there was hardly anybody there. And she visited with her uh, colleague, another professor named Eleanor Jordan, 1901. They went to the Palace of Versailles. They wanted to see the gardens. They entered the, 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 the Grand Gardens, Grand Trianon Garden, but it was closed. So they entered the Petit Trianon Garden, and there they saw some very strange things. They seemed like out of time. There were, people were dressed in very strange uh, old costumes, elaborate costumes, but they, they were all ancient-looking costumes. People were doing things. Uh, They were kind of frozen in time, actually. They didn't move a lot, but there they were. One woman was uh, sitting down at an easel, and she was sketching a picture of the gardens. And uh, they saw a little bridge, and they, 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 they walked across the little bridge, and they thought, this is very strange. People don't move. They don't hear anything. You know, this doesn't look right. There's nobody else here but us and these strange people. And they left, you know. And we kept thinking about this through the years. They kept making more trips back. It was never the same. There were people there. All the gardens were open. They never saw any of those people. So they talked about it. They talked about it. Now, these are, you know, substantial people, college professors. So they wrote a book in 1911 called An Adventure. I think it's still in print somewhere, or available. Anyway, um, Eleanor and her friend, um, uh, they, uh, Charlotte, they, they wrote this book. And um, the British Society for Psychical Research investigated their reports, because they continue to talk about it in addition to their book. And they found that there was a bridge like that, but they only found it in a map that was, was an old antique map. There is no such bridge there now or, or in 1901 when they visited. But there was in the time of King Louis and uh, Marie Antoinette. So they, in descriptions of the woman was painting, seemed to match um, pictures, uh, descriptions of Marie Antoinette. So they, and they knew that she painted and she would sit in the garden and paint. So they assumed that was at Marie Antoinette. It was just very strange. And then they found on investigation that, indeed, elaborate costume parties were set up in Marie Antoinette's Petite Garden by a French poet named Robert Montague. He was famous for his elaborate garden costume parties. So that's been considered um, one of the uh, gold star uh, examples of a well-documented although anecdotal story, in that the, the two people uh, collaborated in their, uh, their account and, and they were credible. That's one of the things that stands out is the credibility and the authenticity 
perhaps yeah. is the, the right word. You begin the book actually with an account that came to you from your colleague at Ancient American Magazine, yeah. which to me is one of the most remarkable cases I've ever heard and actually quite frightening because it involves a family on vacation. I believe they were traveling from Chicago to New Mexico. They mm-hmm. pulled off the interstate to get some gas perhaps and they got caught in what seems like almost an endless loop type time yeah. shift. Tell me about that. Yeah, they kept, it was almost like that Twilight Zone story you might, might have seen on old black and white TV. They kept driving through and uh, they kept going and kept fighting the city. They kept, everywhere they go, they kept fighting the city. And it was like, it was like lost in time, you know, and they couldn't, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't shed the city. They were in this time loop and they were stuck in the time loop visiting this same uh, antiquated city, this old time village. And it was a strange, uh, a strange encounter. That was uh, written up by uh, my friend uh, Frank Joseph, who likes to explore ancient mysteries. Right, right. He's this... had some of his own, in fact, at times slips. In this case, they stopped on the side of the road in a small town, and there was this sort of idyllic vintage-type diner. There was a woman yep. pushing a baby carriage. Uh, yep. So they decided to, and there was an old town square with a clock tower, and uh, yep. so they decided to get out of town. They got back, tried yep. to get back on the interstate. They they were driving in a straight line in one direction, and then they yes. Yes. they arrive at the same town, the same diner, the same woman pushing the baby carriage. Yeah, wherever they went uh, in the straight line, assuming assuming that they were leaving the town, going somewhere else down the road they would find the same woman, and she was exactly in the same spot, pushing the same baby carriage. She hadn't moved, really. She was still there, like frozen in time. The clock still read the same time. And you, you could imagine if you were stuck in time and you had no interaction and there was no motion, how strange it would be. You'd be like frozen in a painting. The, the fact that th- this is being experienced contemporaneously is interesting because it suggests that it's not just it's not the, the mind of the individual that's doing this is it something to do with the location well i you know i i looked at a lot of things in my own experience on mount hood in oregon seemed to be that there were certain situations that would would suggest that you know like you'd see like uh You'd see like a, a vortex, you know, a power vortex. Now, I lived in a place where there uh, used to be a magical gathering place for the Warm Spring Indians, and we would have Indians popping in and popping out. I mean, right in front of your eyes. And it was like, you know, to them it was nothing. You know, of course, now shamans, you know, they do that dream walking, and, you know, it's kind of, you know, it goes with them. But, uh, yeah, they, I mean, there, there's a case to be made, you know, the, the singularity theory. You know the black hole theory um, that there would be a special place in the Earth, a magnetic place where everything is different. But it seems to me, um, and that and that might be it. But 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 I also notice that if you look at examples of people that can reliably have these time shifts, um, they um, they go into an altered state. It seems to me it's a matter of personal consciousness. So I would say that. I don't know if this is uh, mixing our metaphors, but I think there's like a black hole or a capacity within us, and, and it is our there's our heightened consciousness. It is the ability we have to shift our consciousness to an altered state of heightened awareness. And 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 if you think of the the theories of time, well, you know, 
uh, time exists as we focus on it. You know, the chair exists as we focus on it. You know, and if you cease to pay attention to it, then then you your perception is something else, somewhere else, and it it, it kind of slips. You know, and I think these slips might be uh, associated with an altered state of consciousness. Very often, very often people will get into a very quiet, almost meditative, maybe without thinking of it, but an altered state in deep, deep, you know, and, and inner, this is important. The, the inner mind, the brain stops processing. You're no longer thinking of old uh, um situations or or there's no longer a, a, a music going through your head and you're not processing you're not processing it just all becomes very very still well mystics shamans call this um, sort of a meditative state and so what happens is that i think you go into an altered state of consciousness where you cease normal thoughts as far as the human mind now, I know that people think of the mind and mindfulness as this all-powered thing, but I would suggest to you that, and this might be controversial, that the mind is just a filter for the brain, that there's something beyond that. There is universal consciousness, and we have, we have consciousness, and every living thing has consciousness, but we seldom open up to it because we're so busy processing little bits of information on these tiny little computers we call our brains. You quote a diverse group of people in the book, Carlos Castaneda, the author of The Teachings of Don Juan, Elena Blavatsky, the founder of the Theosophical Society, Albert Einstein. Was there a commonality there with those three, what they had to say about the essence of time and even the essence of reality? Yes, it's the essence of reality, that there is an absolute reality, and then there's, it, there, there's a world of illusion, which is, you know, that's not a put down on the physical world, but the physical world is absolutely, I shouldn't use the word absolutely, the, the physical world is a manifestation of energy in a transitory state. Everything that's in the, in the manifest world, in a manifest a physical existence, is still in motion and will eventually revert to pure pure energy or, or unmanifest energy. So what, what we're talking about is an altered reality. Casanada, of course, studied shamanism in Mexico. That's the link. And shamans, shamans just know how to go into these deep states of altered consciousness and just kind of like leave their physical body and they do this with their consciousness and they can go backward in time to speak to the ancestors they can go forward to see what lies ahead for the tribe that's that's the link blavatsky believed in uh, absolute reality um, beyond the physical world of illusion which we call the the, the manifest physical world that the that that this world is not exactly as it seems. It's really energy in a, in a slowed down manifest state. Um, so who else did we have? Uh, I mean, they all, Einstein. I mean, even Einstein, Einstein, Einstein believed in the Maxwell theory of electromagnetic energy. You know, the, the relativity theory came out of uh, the electromagnetic radiation field theory and uh, eventually became part of, uh, of, of, of field, um, unified field theory. 
has been adapted and, and criticized by the quantum um, uh, theory. Um, there's some differences, but they kind of fit to a degree. Now, Einstein believed that, that the same thing, that, that there is energy that comes radiating down to the earth, and it absolutely instills all of life uh, with uh, energy, and it activates, uh, he wouldn't have said this, uh, computer term initializes life. Uh, it is the impulse. It, it, in Blavatsky, she talked about the, 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 the primal power, the, the, light, the divine light that comes down to us, radiates to the earth, and, 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 um, and she said propels and sustains all of life. Now, they're, they're all talking about the same thing. They're talking about um, energized consciousness. When we think of time travel, we think of H.G. Wells, we think of a physical machine in order to achieve time travel. And it's you know, been suggested that in order to do that, you would need to harness the power of the sun, and we don't have that capability, or at least you know, to travel in the past, you would be limited to, to the time at, at which the machine is turned on and so forth. So there are limitations to this type of time travel. But if, could, I, if, could I add one thing yes, to please, that? Yes, please. Yes, please. Well, the thing is, um, no, this is um, kind of interpreting what, what Einstein said, but I think this is what he said, was, was that if, if a material form, such as your human body or a machine or a beautiful DeLorean, could go forward or backward in time, it would in fact have to um, accelerate to at least the speed of light. Now, if you if you did that, <laughs> he said, you would turn into pure energy. You see, so you it's not it's not physically possible. It's not possible according to the known laws of physics as he described them. But however, your consciousness is not a physical thing. It's not a physical thing. It's not located. It's located in your body and around your body and outside your body, but it's not a physical thing. You can't say, "Oh, it's on your your knee bone." You know, it's not there. You know, so those are like the chakras. You know, the our energy vortexes. They're not physical things. They are non-physical things. They are. It's our connection to universal consciousness or energy, if you will. The back to the theory, we are energy bodies. Therefore, uh, your consciousness can leave the body at the speed of light or faster and go forward or backward in time. Now, the interesting thing is that in some instances, or maybe all, not all instances, but many of these instances, you cannot, or the person who's traveling or involved in this time slip can't interact. Uh, It's almost as if they are observing an oil painting. What is, yes. What's that all about? What's going on there, do you think? Uh, I think, and now here the, the physicists that are toying with time once again, as they do throughout the ages, there's been a lot of speculation, that, that you really can't change the past or the future. You can go there. Now, this is, this is Kostanada. This is philosophy of the, of the, of the uh, Yaki Indians. But he said, well, you know, you go there as a perfect witness. I like that. You go there as a witness. So the shaman leaves, goes back to visit the ancestors and listens, or he interprets, or he goes forward and he observes what, what lies ahead. As, as many, like Chief Self did, they went to a time when the, the world was ravaged by, by, by settlers, and, and there were no buffalo, and there were no trees, and the rivers were polluted. And he came back, and he, and he, he saw this, you know. But 
now you don't have interaction, you know. It's rare. It's rare. Any instance you can find in time travel where someone claimed they had interaction. I'm I'm not saying it's not been reported, but this is all anecdotal. And if we look at a pattern, a general pattern of all these time slips, they tend to be uh, cases where everything is frozen. You're just like there and it's not moving, and you certainly can't interact, and they probably won't see you or react to you. You are invisible. You are there in consciousness. Well, that eliminates the grandfather paradox. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. So is that... But now... Well, I was, was just going to say, say is, that a, is that a karmic law, or is it something... Is it physics? I'm not a physicist. Uh, I do try to practice karma, but <laughs> I don't know. It's it's a directive, you know, the Dharma law. But I uh, I think that um, I think the answer is both. I think the answer is both. You know, and 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 I try to read in in these subject areas. Of course, what science has to say, what philosophy has to say, what religion has to say, historically, uh, how we've treated time. It just seems like you can't change the past. Now, I suspect, based on my own personal observation in time slips, that you can go back and have some impact on you. That is to say, if you find you at an earlier age when you're ill, now psychologists do this all the time, go back, go back, go back, go back, you go back to when you're five years old and you're crying and it's because you don't understand. It says, put an arm around that little boy, comfort him. Now, I don't know if you really help the little boy or you help the, the, the man or the woman who's, who's doing that, but it seems that that would not violate the laws of karma because it's you. It's you, you know. And, and, but moreover, we go back and we're just becoming informed of what was or what will be. I want to touch on a couple of other examples in the book, and one is a fascinating account that that takes place. It was a thief, I believe, or a criminal in Liverpool who was trying to avoid capture by the police. Tell me about that. That's one of my favorite stories. I'm glad you thought of that one. Well, he is uh, running down a Liverpool alley. This happens in 2006 and reported in the local Liverpool Echo. And they've been a lot of strange things in Liverpool, so you might be right. There might be an um, uh, uh, energy vortex or a place where this happens. But this policeman was chasing a thief down an alley, and the man, right in front of his eyes, the man just seemingly disappeared. And the policeman just stood there trying to figure out what to do. Well, the thief was shocked to find that he'd, he'd somehow entered the alley and found strange antique shops. It didn't look like it was what he was familiar with seeing in that alley. And he thought, what the heck? And he stopped at a newsstand and he looked at a newspaper and the date line said 1967. And this happens in 2006. And he looked at it again, it says 1967. He thought, this is crazy. He turned and he ran back from the direction he came. And, of course, he, he almost bumps into the policeman who's still there wondering where he was. And the policeman reports that he suddenly just appeared out of nothing, out of nowhere. And he brings him in, and the copper said that the man vanished strangely, and then, and then he started running toward him, and he nabbed him. So they interrogated the thief, and he was able to accurately, accurately describe the shops and the landmarks down that alley in the 1960s. 
Remarkable, remarkable. It's too bad he was just a few years too late to see the Beatles at the Cavern Club. I know. He could have scored an easy ticket, yeah. <laughs> There's another account. This one is remarkable as well. And, and this involves, I think it is in New York. A man shows up with no identity, wearing uh, a period clothing from a bygone era. And meanwhile, it, it turns out he went missing in his own time period. Do you remember the story yeah. I'm referring to? Yeah, this was, this was actually described in Collier's Magazine, September 15th of 1951 by Jack Finney. And the man was called Rudolph Fentz. And this supposedly happened in New York to Rudolph Fence in 1950. And it's somewhat controversial, probably the way Jack Finney wrote it up. It seemed kind of like, this is crazy. But, you know, through the years, people are thinking, this is, this is really strange. Now, this is an exceptional story because the, seem, the man did seem to have a physical presence. And he, he maintained that physical presence in his time slip. And he had interaction. Uh, let me describe Suddenly, the people in New York in 1950 saw this strange man in a top hat, out-of-date suit, handlebar mustache, and he's um, apparently frightened by all the cars as though he doesn't know what they are. He doesn't know how to react to them. And he's hit by a car, and he's killed. So they take him to the morgue, and they try to figure out where he was, and they check missing persons. They find no reports of missing, missing persons, anything described like this man. They go through his, his belongings, his pockets. They find strange coins, antique coins, some they've never seen before. They find a livery bill from Philadelphia, you know, for horses, a livery bill in Philadelphia. And they find a business card with the name Dr. Rudolph Fence. Well, this is strange. They don't know what to make of it. But it's a cold case for many years, and, and then it was studied, and then you know, people pick it up and they look at it, and what is it? And so in 1951, Jack Finney, he, uh, he said, well, we have the answer just almost as soon as it happened. They went through the um, phone book, the police, and um, they found uh, somebody, Mrs. Rudolph Sense, and they called her up, and they, and, and they brought her in, and, and she said, well, you know, I am uh, the widow of... Rudolph Fence Jr. He said, Rudolph Fence, is he a doctor? He said, no, no, no. But his father was a doctor. And he, and, and he, was, he, he disappeared years ago when he went out for a walk and never came back. It was a strange story. Very strange story. I'll say, I'll say. And, and pretty well documented, it sounds. Yeah, you got a police report. You got you got uh, the widow of the, uh, apparently the man's son, you know, in the description of how she described the way her her father-in-law apparently would look, you know, seemed to match, you know, the strange coins delivery bill, you know, it just, you know, often these people they'll they'll be so alarmed by what they see they don't know how to react they'll they'll run and they'll be frightened and you know it's it is disorienting if you don't expect to time travel to find you've time traveled. I want to talk about a popular YouTube video that went viral several years ago. Someone was watching, I'm not sure if it was an old newsreel, but it was a, a woman outside of a theater. I believe it was the, uh, the Charlie Chaplin film, The Circus, 1928. And yep. in that movie, uh, there is a scene where a, a woman, and she's holding a device in her hand, yep. and she appears to be talking into it. And some somebody yep. thought, aha, 
That's a cell phone. This is a time traveler. What, what are your thoughts well, on that? Well, there's an, also a story about that. Um, that's been a legend now for many decades. There were also reports on the evening of the, the opening night for that movie, which was a big deal in its time, Charlie Chaplin, 1928. So it was the opening you know, uh, night, and everybody's outside, milling, exciting to, you know, excited to go in, and they're all like, queued up you know, to go inside. And they see this. They all are standing there watching everything, you know, and a woman keeps walking by the theater, but she doesn't seem to react to them. The Instead, she's holding what appears to be some device she's talking into up to her ear, and they can't figure out what it is. She's holding something up to her head, her ear, and she's talking. And um, and she she looked strange, you know. And they all thought, what in the world is this, you know? Well, I mean, we all probably thought that was a little strange when Star Trek had the communicators, and then we got our little flip phones, right? So maybe, maybe, maybe it was a woman time slipping had a phone, a cell phone, a mobile phone. <laughs> right. But right. Uh, that seems to be the case, you know. I mean, there were a lot of reports. A lot of people saw this. It wasn't just one crazy person. Right. Now that you're, you're attuned to this, and, and, and now thousands and thousands of people are attuned to this, and no doubt scouring old film footage and looking for yep. potentially another time traveler, have you heard any other or seen for yourself old film footage where you say that might be a time traveler? No, I mean, I, I like to watch old movies, and I always look for oddities, you know, like if you can see uh, the, the cameraman on the big, uh, you know, uh, the, the wheeling cameras that are moving. You can see things like that. I, I personally do I never recall seeing anything. I guess I'm not the most observant people, but I person, but I, I don't recall anything like that myself. But the idea that there may be time travelers amongst us, you know, all the time, is kind of fascinating. And once in a while, someone will come forward and, and publicly claim, you know, we hear them yeah. on Coast to Coast with Art Bell many years ago, John Teeter and so yeah. forth. What do, you think of yeah. those, what do you think of those accounts? Well, you know, um, it, it's hard to substantiate it, isn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the test is like how reliable are the witnesses? You need to um, determine um, whether the reports match what, uh, you know, if it's really out of the blue, you know, like uh, did Charlotte Moberly know what Marie Antoinette looked like? Did she know where the bridge was? No, the answer is no to both cases. So if it's just completely like, you know, their story matches up with the reality, they didn't seem to have as a personal lifelong memory, then where did they get this information, you know? So I think, Richard, that a lot of people have time slips and they have them, and they can't relate to them, so they just blow them off. Daydreams, visions, flights of fancy. My, my mother told a story of her seeing her, what turned out to be her brother, and she, she couldn't relate to it because when she saw this man walking, it wasn't the way her brother looked at the time she had the vision. Her brother was young. She was a little girl. Years later, she went and she sat on the same porch at the same time of day, same time of year. She saw the same thing happening. The man appeared and it disappeared in exactly the same place, looking the same way. And she recognized him. It was the way her brother looked then, her brother. Is it related to uh, remote viewing, do you think? Sure. 
<laughs> sure, that's, a, that's my short, short answer. It's related to that. It's related to uh, out-of-body vision, visioning, uh, traveling. It's related to dreams, um, uh, lucid dreaming. You know, it's, it's taking your consciousness and leaving the body. And where it goes, when we leave our body in a consciousness form like this, whether it's a lucid dream or remote viewing or astral projection, I should say astral travel, it is, um, you know, there's no limitation to time. Time doesn't exist in, in pure energy. It doesn't. It's a physical manifestation. It's, remember, it's time, time space are linked. So, you know... So you can you can absolutely go forward or backward in time any time you want. So when I do um, uh, uh, workshops, I try to get people to pick a time to go, <laughs> pick a specific time, you know, to go and and what you want to see, where you want to go, you know, because you can go anywhere, you know, if you if you plan it out. How do you know when you're having a dream? And let's say in the dream you're traveling someplace into the past, into the future, or just another location. How do you differentiate between an actual, an actual astral traveling episode or a time shift and just a normal dream? Yeah, well, they're they're so similar. I mean, uh, time slips are usually usually occurring to people when they're out walking. They're they're not they're not peacefully reclining, you know, and and and. They're they're mobile, you know. Charlotte Moberly, she walks into the garden. You know, she consciously, physically goes there. You know, then it's all you know. In in a in a dream, very often you are, you set it up. You know, you program your dream before before you go to sleep, or you could have a waking dream, a lucid dream while you're awake. I mean, the ancients used to have dream temples for this reason. This is not a new idea. The ancients did this, you know, thousands of years ago. They'd have dream temples, and um, people would go, and, and, and they'd have these uh, amazing dreams uh, out of body. And um, so remote viewing is where you're, where you're keenly uh, a witness to what you see. You know, so I know that remote viewing has been used um, for specific pers- purposes. I mean, um, the there's the black ops program. I know in the government that uses it effectively to some degree. There is the case of psychics that work with the police. They'll try to find lost people, lost pets, lost keys. I mean, I do it myself. If I lose something, I try to see where it is. You know, and and I. I'm not going there, you know, so much as I'm seeing it. So I'm sending my consciousness as my, my, my awareness, let's say, my new set of eyes. So I'm, I'm seeing something. I'm keenly observing something. Um, and, and that's a very effective way to use this remote viewing. Well, you've been at this a long time, and now you're able to do it at will. How precise are you, or can you be? Can you tonight decide, I'm going to go to, I'm going to witness the Kennedy assassination. I'm going to be standing <laughs> standing in the Dealey Plaza on November 22nd, 1963, at just before 12 o'clock. It's not always that easy. It's easier if you pick a time that you can reference to, or that you can relate to. In other words, this is actually a, a sense of magnetic 
karmic attraction. You can always find yourself. You can always find yourself on the time loop order or backward easier than anything else. So to go and see something else, see, that's why not everybody is really effective at time at um, remote viewing because they're trying to witness things that they have no, they have no frame of reference to, no karmic uh, magnetic attraction. So to answer your question, some things are hard. <laughs> Don't know if I could witness the Kennedy assassination. And, I, and I've never tried, and I frankly wouldn't want to, but uh, theoretically, you would be able to. Where are you going tonight, Vaughn? I I don't know. I mean, I'm so busy now. Um, I'm probably going to go out to my little cabin where I like to ride out uh, off the coast of Washington State near Vancouver, B.C. It's a little cabin in the woods on a tiny little remote island, and it's so peaceful. I just sit out there with the deer and the and the chipmunks and the birds, and I sit there and peck away. Um, that's probably where I want to go. <laughs> Um, yeah, and um, and I I became aware of this when I was working with my first teacher was the psychic author Lewis Gittner, and he was telling me a little bit about this. But he would always wait till his students would be up to a mark before he'd describe what had happened to them. He'd take you to the edge and then let you jump off the wall. So in this case, I I decided to go and visit him. In in the in in what I would consider my present time, on his uh, little island in, and see what was happening, and lo and behold, and I did this I did this uh, lying down on a sofa, and I, I could clearly, vividly see the inn, and I noticed that it was dark, overcast, it had rained. Recently, I noticed that the front of the inn had been recently painted, and there were there were um, markers directing traffic around the painted area. So he had to use an alternate route to get to the front door. And when I saw him, I I said, you know, I, I miss seeing you, but I I did come here in a vision. I told him, I, in a vision, um, I, I I astral traveled here, and and I saw this. And um, and I saw it very clearly. He said, and I told him the, the approximate time I went, time of the day, and um, he said, "Oh, that was just about when we painted the front." He says that was a problem because it rained right after we painted. We worried. Bingo. <laughs> Bingo. Right? Yeah. And I didn't know that because they painted it the same color. You see, so I didn't know it was really painted. Remarkable. Time shifts, experiences of slipping into the past and future. Vaughn, how do we get a copy? Oh, um, well, it is going to be on Amazon or wonderful stores everywhere. Barnes & Noble has it and online, and it will be out uh, the first uh, first part of April. So you could actually pre-order it now. You'll probably get it before April. Vaughn, thank you so much for this. Happy travels. Thank you, Richard. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need...
we need constant petting. 